Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Primary Care Anywhere podcast. Today, we're going to be discussing perioperative medicine. To start us off, Dr. Leah Stinson, one of our interns, is going to walk us through a clinical vignette. Following that, Dr. Ben Gao Lee, another one of our interns, will be discussing assessment of risk factors and quantitative risk assessments. Following this, Dr. Matteo Sullivan, one of our second-year residents, will be discussing the pre-op history, exam, and indications for lab and stress testing. After this, I, Joel Money, one of the chief residents, will be going through medication management in the perioperative setting. And to finalize, Dr. Leah Stinson will wrap up our clinical vignette. Hope you enjoy. Every surgical procedure carries with it some degree of risk. The degree of risk is dependent both on how healthy the patient is at baseline and how risky the planned surgery is. One of our jobs in the primary care clinic is to both assess risk and attempt to mitigate risk for our patients undergoing surgery. Today, we'll walk through a clinical vignette to illustrate some of the preoperative decision-making that happens in the primary care clinic. For our clinical vignette today, we have Mr. Arthur Reitus, a 58-year-old male with insulin-dependent diabetes, hypertension, and obesity who says he has come to the clinic to, quote, get cleared for his upcoming right total knee arthroplasty. After getting to know Mr. Reitus a little bit, you go through some review of systems questions. A cardiopulmonary review of systems reveals that In terms of exercise capacity, the patient lifts weights occasionally, but is unable to walk very far secondary to knee pain for the past two years. Patient does not get chest pain when performing ADLs. He says he occasionally gets burning chest discomfort, mostly after meals. He has no edema, orthopnea, or PND. He has no lightheadedness or palpitations. And he has no history of coronary or vascularization. He does endorse a chronic dry cough. He denies shortness of breath, but as he mentioned, he cannot exert himself very much. When going over hemostasis review systems, the patient indicates that he does not have a history of easy bruising or bleeding and has not had any significant bleeding after prior surgeries. He also indicates that he has no history of severe postoperative fever or malignant hyperthermia and has not had any other reactions to anesthesia in the past. In the patient's past medical history is hypertension, obesity with a BMI of 32, insulin-dependent diabetes, his last A1C one month ago was 8.2, GERD, moderate obstructive sleep apnea on CPAP, essential tremor, and hypothyroidism. In terms of past surgical history, he had a tonsillectomy when he was a teenager and an appendectomy at age 28. He didn't have any complications with either of these surgeries. In terms of medications, he takes lisinopril and chlorthalidone for hypertension. He takes 30 units of glargine at bedtime and 10 units of aspart TID, as well as metformin and atorvastatin for his history of diabetes. He takes emephrazole daily for GERD, levothyroxine for hypothyroidism, and propranolol for essential tremor. He also takes ibuprofen as needed and a baby aspirin because he heard it's good for his heart. He takes a multivitamin, but no other over-the-counter supplements and he has no known allergies. In terms of family history, his mom died after complications from a stroke at age 83. His dad had heart disease and died of old age. No family members had bad reactions to anesthesia. In terms of social history, he lives with his wife in a house, works as a manager at a local restaurant, and smokes half a pack per day of cigarettes, 
but he's working on quitting. He drinks one to two drinks per week. No other substance use. Objective data reveals a blood pressure of 132 over 81, a heart rate of 74, a temperature of 98.1, and he's setting 95% on room air. His BMI is 32. On exam, the patient is alert and sitting up in the chair, appears comfortable and is conversational. His sclera are anecteric, and he has good range of motion in his neck. On pulmonary exam, he's breathing comfortably on room air and his lungs are clear to auscultation bilaterally. His heart has a regular rate and rhythm with no murmurs, rubs, or gallops. His abdomen is obese, but soft and non-tender. His extremities don't show any lower extremity edema. There are no visible rashes or lesions on his skin, and he's alert and oriented with no gross focal deficits on neurologic exam. Every surgery has an associated risk, but some have more risk than others. Low-risk surgeries tend to be minimally invasive. They don't enter any major body cavity. These surgeries include breast, cataract, thyroid, and cosmetic surgeries, minor orthopedic, gynecologic, or urologic procedures, and endoscopic procedures. These surgeries tend to have less than 1% of a risk for serious complications. In intermediate risk surgeries, surgeons begin to enter the thoracic and abdominal cavities, such as with cholecystectomies or hiatal hernia repairs. Intermediate risk surgeries also include carotid or endovascular surgeries, head and neck surgeries, and major orthopedic, urologic, gynecologic, or neurologic surgeries. These surgeries carry about a 1-5% to risk of serious complications. High-risk surgeries, where risk of serious complications is greater than 5%, include vascular surgeries, major abdominal operations, or prolonged procedures with large fluid shifts, such as bile duct surgery or perforated bowel surgery. Esophagectomies, pneumonectomies, adrenal resection, and lung, liver, or pancreas transplants are also high-risk. When evaluating patients, clinicians should consider not only the risk from the type of surgery to be performed, but also patients' chronic medical conditions. Both of these factors independently affect risk. For healthy patients, the overall risk of serious medical complications from surgery is less than 0.1%. However, patients with conditions such as ischemic heart disease, cerebrovascular disease, heart failure, pulmonary disease, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, bleeding disorders, and liver disease all face increased risk of medical and surgical complications. Also, the more functionally limiting a condition is, the greater the risk. Thankfully, paraoperative mortality has decreased significantly in the last 50 years, despite increasing patient baseline risk. Not only do type of surgery and chronic medical conditions affect risk, but also patient lifestyles. Exercisability is important to assess. Patients who report not being able to climb two flights of stairs or walk four blocks can have double the risk of complications. Patient smoking status is also important to consider. Current smokers, especially with a high pack year history or who have respiratory symptoms or a history of pulmonary disease, have increased risk. Thankfully, smoking sensation decreases risk. Quitting, even as little as four weeks before surgery, improves surgical outcomes, with each week of tobacco abstinence lowering risk even more. Alcohol also increases the risk, especially for men who drink more than two drinks a day, or for women who drink more than one drink a day.
Obesity also increases risk, partly because of associated conditions. Some obese patients may face perioperative risks and complications that cause them not to be candidates for ambulatory surgery. They may need to expect to stay overnight for more observation. With all of these risk factors in mind, let's talk about putting a number on the surgical risk using different risk calculators. The most widely used tool is the Revised Cardiac Risk Index. This calculator stratifies patients based on their 30-day risk of death, myocardial infarction, or cardiac arrest by combining their history of renal insufficiency, CHF, cerebrovascular or ischemic heart disease, and insulin-dependent diabetes with the general risk of their surgery. If their risk is found to be high, the risk index then uses BNP or NT-proBNP to further assess that risk. Unfortunately, the revised cardiac risk index tends to underestimate risk in patients having major vascular surgery and overestimate risk in patients having only low-risk surgery. The American College of Surgeons' National Surgical Quality Improvement Program has also made a risk calculator. This calculator can be easily found by searching for ACS risk calculator. Like the revised cardiac risk index, this calculator considers the patient's history and type of surgery, but it also considers more factors, such as the patient's functional status, the presence of other comorbidities in the patient, and their medication use. A final calculator is the GUPTA score for a perioperative risk for myocardial infarction or cardiac arrest calculator. This is also known as the MICA or MICA or GUPTA score. This calculator places a bigger emphasis on the actual type of surgery the patient will undergo by considering 21 different surgery categories. The surgical categories are based on anatomic location, such as brain, cardiac, intestinal, or skin. All of these calculators are readily available and easy to find on the internet or MDCalc. This is Maddie O'Sullivan, a current internal medicine PGY2 at the University of Utah. Today I'll be walking through the preoperative evaluation and indications for lab and cardiac stress testing. So I think intuitively to start with, every patient undergoing a surgical procedure should be considered for a preoperative evaluation, but what that looks like can and should vary uh, based on both patient and surgical characteristics. Very low risk procedures like a dental or ophthalmology procedure may be simple confirmation of the patient's medical history and risk factors prior to the procedure by the physician performing the procedure, whereas a more complex surgery uh, or for patients with more medical comorbidities, they should undergo evaluation by a physician with experience in preoperative assessment in particular. In terms of what information should be obtained as part of that evaluation, um, I think always a good idea to start with a thorough history and physical, including a review of medical and surgical history, medication uh, and supplement review, as well as a substance use history, um, since we know all of those things can be risk factors in terms of perioperative risk. Um, in particular, our assessment should include um, an evaluation of exercise tolerance, the possibility of pregnancy depending on patient characteristics, and uh, any previous anesthesia experiences, including a personal or family history of postoperative fever or perioperative death to evaluate for predisposition to malignant hyperthermia. There should be a strong focus, uh, in particular with a review of systems on cardiopulmonary symptoms, and a review of personal and family history of bleeding disorders. 
But not every patient needs objective testing with laboratory data or an empiric EKG prior to surgery. Testing should be individualized and guided by history and physical, as well as the planned procedure in particular, rather than taking a standardized approach to every patient. We have evidence from multiple studies that suggests when specific labs are ordered based on an individual patient's characteristics, there's a higher likelihood of abnormal findings that actually alter perioperative care rather than ordering a standard set of labs for each patient. An example would be thinking about, you know, a CBC with a hemoglobin and white count for a surgery with anticipation of major bleeding, or if your patient has symptoms of infection, or maybe a platelet count in a patient with a history of nutritional deficiency or liver disease. Finally, we'll talk a little bit about indications for stress testing. Generally, I think we can start um, by saying you have the same indications for patients who are not undergoing surgery, like if you have symptoms of ischemia, obviously you're going to consider cardiac testing prior to surgery, but it may not be necessary in patients with a known uh, history of chronic stable angina. We can also think about preoperative risk in terms of cardiac risk and functional status and use those two things combined to help us determine whether or not a patient should undergo testing. One tool we can use is the Revised Cardiac Risk Index, or RCRI, which takes into account a high-risk surgery, renal insufficiency, heart failure, diabetes with insulin use, ischemic heart disease, and cerebrovascular disease. It's the most widely used and externally validated scoring system we have to help us separate patients into low versus elevated risk groups. But we should note that it tends to underestimate risk in patients having major vascular surgery and overestimates risk in low-risk or ambulatory procedures. So again, using this as kind of one piece of information in our global clinical assessment. At the same time, we can measure functional status um, by estimating what we call metabolic equivalents or METs. Uh, using, you know, a patient's ability to complete ADLs. We consider a poor functional status being um, metabolic equivalents less than four, and perioperative risk tends to be higher in these patients. We can think of a metabolic equivalent of four equivalent to climbing a flight of stairs. So that's an easy way to kind of screen patients uh, in terms of their functional status, asking, can you climb a flight of stairs without having to stop and rest? The bottom line is that patients with increased cardiac risk and poor functional status should be considered for non-invasive cardiac testing if the results are likely to change management. And I think that's a really important point. If the results of cardiac testing aren't going to change whether or not, you know, this patient needs surgery, then it may not be necessary. There's a really nice algorithm included in the 2014 ACCAHA perioperative guidelines. And I'll just walk through that quickly to wrap things up. In a patient who has known or risk factors for coronary artery disease, the first thing is, is the, is the procedure or surgery emergent? If it is, then you're going to proceed with the surgery. The next thing would be to rule out acute coronary syndrome. Of course, if you have ACS, then you need to evaluate that prior to surgery. If you have no signs or symptoms of ACS, you'll next think about your risk based on what type of surgery this is. If it's a low-risk procedure, you can proceed without cardiac testing, kind of like we talked about in the beginning. If you have a more complicated or elevated risk procedure, at that point, you'll move on to estimating your patient's functional status using that MET scoring system. 
If your METs are greater than four, you can proceed without further testing. But if less than four or unknown, then you'll next need to decide if further testing will actually impact your decision-making on whether or not this patient will go to surgery. If it will impact your decision-making, proceed with pharmacologic stress testing and if abnormal coronary revascularization prior to your surgery. If it's not going to change your decision-making, proceed with surgery or consider alternatives. Hey everyone, my name is Joel Money. I'm one of the chief medical residents at the University of Utah, and I'm going to be walking through medication management in the perioperative setting. There is a lot that we could talk about with this kind of a topic, but I'm going to try to focus in on six main medication classes and discuss those. The first one is aspirin. If patients undergoing elective surgery will typically ask to stop the aspirin five to seven days ahead of a surgery if the bleeding risk of that surgery outweighs the thrombosis risk from abrupt cessation. A lot of times we're discussing with the surgeons their preference for aspirin. If it's being used for primary prevention, we usually don't use it anyway, but typically we'll be trying to stop it if it's an elective surgery. The next class is diabetes medications. In patients on oral hypoglycemic agents, things like metformin, sulfonylurea, SGLT2 inhibitors, we're typically holding those the day of surgery. In patients who are already on insulin, their basal insulin dose we will be decreasing by 30 to 50% or so, and we're going to be holding their short-acting insulin the day of surgery. It's good to know that higher A1Cs are typically associated with worse surgical outcomes, um, but it's unclear if there's really an absolute cutoff above which elective surgery should be postponed. The third class is diuretics and ACE inhibitors. These were typically holding the day of surgery to try to prevent hypotension and acute kidney injury in the perioperative setting, but please know that the data to support this is quite weak and it is reasonable to continue them in certain cases. If you've held it, we'll typically be resuming them within two days of surgery as long as everything else looks okay. The fourth class of medications are steroids. In patients who are on chronic glucocorticoids for things like rheumatologic disease or baseline adrenal insufficiency, uh, we will be giving them typically stress dose steroids, superphysiologic doses of steroids uh, in the perioperative setting. A lot of times we're getting our endocrine colleagues involved with this, but please know that um, in patients who are on at least five milligrams for three weeks or greater of, of prednisone, we're hoping to give them stress dose steroids in that kind of a setting. The fifth class is beta blockers. Historically, there's been a lot of controversy over beta blocker use in the perioperative setting. And this was on the basis of a couple of trials, one called the POISE trial, where they gave people beta blockers with really high doses with the intent of preventing MI. And in fact, they found a reduction in MI, but an increased risk of stroke and perioperative mortality in people who got beta blockers. The general recommendation now is to not start a beta blocker in patients who are not already taking them, but to continue them if they are already on a beta blocker. The last class of medications is with anticoagulation, and this really could be a whole episode in and of itself. But in patients who have atrial fibrillation that are anticoagulated, we're typically holding their anticoagulation and not bridging them with things like heparin or anoxaparin for CHADS2 VAS scores of 4 or less, and there is very limited evidence in doing it in patients who have CHADS2 VAS scores of 5 to 6. We're still bridging people for mechanical mitral and aortic valves or AFib with recent stroke or recent venous thromboembolism, 
but please know again that the evidence supporting this is, is changing pretty rapidly and will probably be updated soon. That's all I have for medication management, guys. Thanks for listening. To help guide this patient's preoperative assessment, let's walk through a couple risk calculators for him. First, let's go through his revised cardiac risk index, or RCRI. For his RCRI, he does get one point for his preoperative treatment with insulin, but he doesn't score any points for an elevated risk surgery, history of ischemic heart disease, congestive heart failure, or cerebrovascular disease. Additionally, since his preoperative creatinine is less than two, he doesn't get any points for that. Based on a score of one, the recommended next step is to measure the patient's NT proBNP or BNP. If his NT proBNP is greater than 300 or a BNP of greater than 92, the patient should have an EKG ordered in the PACU and troponins should be measured daily for 48 to 72 hours. Next, we'll go through a risk assessment that I'll refer to as NISKIP, which stands for the National Surgical Quality Improvement Program. This is a preoperative risk assessment that incorporates both the type of surgical procedure and the patient's comorbidities to predict a variety of postoperative complications. The variables that put this patient at higher risk include his use of insulin, hypertension requiring medication, his active smoking, and his BMI. Going through the risk assessment for this patient, we see that he is at above average risk for serious complications at a risk of 5.1%. Specifically, he has a 0.4 chance both of pneumonia and cardiac complications. In terms of other medical complications, he is most at risk for surgical site infections at a risk of 1.6%. Now we'll discuss further studies and recommendations for this patient in order to reduce this risk. For lab data, we'll get a complete blood count to look at the hemoglobin. We'll get a basic metabolic panel so that we can look at his electrolytes since he's on a diuretic and to assess his creatinine since he has diabetes and is on an ACE inhibitor. Finally, we'll get an NT proBNP given his RCRI of 1. For other studies, we'll get an EKG given his history of diabetes and hypertension. We'll get a chest x-ray given his chronic cough and smoking history. We will not get a stress echo for this patient. This is based off of the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association 2014 recommendations for preoperative stress echo. Although this patient has risk factors for coronary artery disease and we're unable to assess his functional capacity because of his knee pain, he is not having any symptoms of coronary artery disease and the preoperative stress echo is unlikely to change management. If he were to need revascularization, this would result in a significant delay of his surgery. Next, we'll talk to the patient about what to do with his medications around his surgery. So first, I'll recommend that he hold his lisinopril and chlorthalidone on the day of surgery due to the risk of hypotension and electrolyte disturbance, while recognizing that this is up to provider preference. There's little evidence to suggest that discontinuing diuretics because of the risk of hypotension improves outcomes, and these antihypertensives should be resumed within two days of surgery. In terms of his diabetes medications, he should take his typical glargine dose the night before surgery. If it were intermediate-acting insulin, we would recommend he decrease it to one-half to two-thirds of his typical dose. We'll hold his short-acting insulin and metformin on the day of surgery. 
and short-acting insulin can be used as needed on the day of surgery. We'll recommend he hold his multivitamin. In terms of his ibuprofen, we'll recommend he not use that for two to three days prior to surgery since NSAIDs are reversible platelet inhibitors. With his baby aspirin, we'll recommend that he stop five to seven days prior to surgery since it's for primary prevention and continuing during surgery has not been shown to decrease postoperative MI or death, but is associated with increased risk of bleeding. The following medications should be continued on the day of surgery. His omeprazole, propranolol, levothyroxine, and atorvastatin. Finally, we have an excellent opportunity here in a primary care clinic to decrease this patient's perioperative pulmonary risks during our visit. Given his history of smoking and sleep apnea, he's at increased risk of pulmonary complications. We should counsel the patient to quit smoking four to eight weeks or sooner before surgery. Additionally, we should counsel him on deep breathing and incentive spirometry to use postoperatively, as these measures are more effective if they are discussed with the patient in a preoperative setting. Finally, we'll recommend the patient bring his CPAP to the hospital. Hopefully, our thorough assessment will help Mr. Reitus have the smoothest and lowest risk operation he can have. However, we need to communicate the role of this visit to the patient. We can't clear the patient for surgery as there is no way to remove all risk related to surgeries. Instead, we can do our best to optimize his medical care and reduce his risk factors before surgery while counseling the patient that his surgery will not be risk-free.